Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. Later on in the programme today we'll be joined by England's 1966 Football World Cup hero Sir Geoff Hurst. But and before then, I'm delighted to have alongside me on the programme today, Andrew Try, the CEO at ComXO. ComXO is a leading provider of 21st century switchboard and business concierge services to professional service firms. Andrew, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Good morning, Scott. Great to be on the programme. Thank you. Good morning, Andrew. It's a real pleasure having you alongside us. Um, The reason we are here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And in light of the fact that today's generation of business leaders is going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the form of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business. Uh, well, it's uh, had a huge effect uh, on us as a business, uh, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, we provide uh, virtualized business services, including uh, switchboard uh, to the professional service firms in the City of London, and uh, of course, as all of those moved their workforces uh, to be home-based, the requirements for our services uh, shot through the roof. Um, now, that might sound as though that was a good thing which it has been in the in the medium term, but uh, in the short term, uh, we had uh, literally uh, all of our clients and uh, not only that, some who wanted to be clients uh, suddenly scrambling at the door wanting to uh, take uh, uh, or use our services. And so from an operational standpoint, uh, you know, that was pretty challenging. And uh, not only that, uh, but we then had to move all of our staff from an office-based um uh, basis back to uh, home and uh, the move of that over a sort of four-day period again uh, proved to be operationally very challenging uh, but something that uh, we managed and I'm very proud of my team uh, who managed to, uh, to, to, to do that. Certainly when it comes to leadership people have seen their teams during this period really bringing the best out in themselves, haven't they? Really standing up and being counted during a time of adversity uh, such as this. Um, albeit it has been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many people, Andrew. Do you think there are positives to take from this experience in the way of experiencing crisis management for those business leaders out there, but also almost a sense of character building as well? Uh, without question, um, I think... Uh, that any crisis brings the best out of uh, a team and brings people together. It galvanizes people around a sense of purpose um, and, um, you know, makes them really consider, um, you know, why they're working for a particular organization or, or, or leader. Um, and then to overcome challenges and come out the other side, um, of course, there is a, you know, the sense of a massive achievement against the odds. Um and, uh, you know, that, that is, is something certainly that we'll be taking out. You know, we, we have been able to see at Comex, so what we actually are capable of doing. Um, and uh, I use the home working example of that. Uh, we, you know, we've been, uh, experimenting with home working for our own staff over, uh, two or three years and we've invested in all the equipment to enable us to do so. But there was a reluctance within the organization to, 
go the whole hog and get everybody to work from home. Um, and we had a, uh, a roadmap of about a year and a half to uh, achieve that. Well, uh, when the crisis came, we did it in four days and we did it well and uh, didn't drop on any balls. So it just went to uh, show and to prove, you know, what one can do as a team, you know, when uh, one really has to. We've really been reviewing our own working practices during this time, haven't we? Because people have been debating as to whether the conventional office environment will have a place in the uh, the future or whether we'll be working from home on a more personal basis, of course. But do you think that anything in that what we call the conventional office has changed indeed in the past 10 years? Um, apart from the, you know, the move to digitize services and, uh, again, a lot of what we do, which is virtualized services. So, you know, we talk about the human cloud sitting above any size organization in anywhere in the world, enabling people within that organization to get things done, no matter where they are geographically. You know, there has been a huge change towards, uh, you know, that uh, digitization of, uh, of organizations. But in terms of the office space as a cultural uh, place, uh, I don't think much has changed. I think humans uh, require um, contact with others, um, both for social reasons, for enjoyment, uh, but also for creativity. Um, and uh, my personal belief is that the office does have a, uh, a relevant place uh, in our future. And I think the central business district in London has a, uh, a place in our future. And um, once uh, we have got used to uh, dealing with the pandemic and uh, uh, or, or uh, fingers crossed we have a vaccine. I think you will find people will migrate back to um, some of the practices that they used to have, particularly um, going back into the office. But they will also have the option now that they can work from home when they want to. Um, and most of my clients who are major law firms are looking at anywhere from, you know, 30 to 50 percent are, you know, of the time spent uh, in, in the office or uh, at home. Um, and um, I think the drive and the move back to the office will be uh, the younger uh, cohort of our employment base of our workforce, because these are the people that uh, want to uh, get out of the uh, cramped conditions that they might have with a shared flat or e even uh, uh, with mum and dad. And they want to get back into uh, the cut and thrust of, uh, you know, the busy um, you know, office. Um, and of course, that's where a lot of their social interactions, you know, occur. So um, I, I think the, uh, the office has a place in the future. But I also think the flexibility of being able to work from home uh, also has a place there. The workplace is not a place, actually. It is wherever you happen to be. Um, and again, having access to the services you require when you require them is, uh, you know, the difference between, um, you know, working and being, uh, you know, and, and being able to work uh, well, being able to work very efficiently. And of course, you mentioned the importance of social interaction in that office space as well there, Andrew. Um, from the point of view of mental health, which has really been thrust back into the limelight during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, just how important is that within leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own mental well-being and also that of those around you as well? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of what we've heard um, about um, home working has come from um, leaders in organizations who uh, have very nice houses out in the uh, the suburbs. Um, they've got the family support around them. 
um, and uh, of course uh, the whole pandemic chance to be in a very um, rather nice sort of weather um, you know spell that we had in the UK but if you turn the tables and uh, you know find out what's happening with the rest of your workforce there are clearly uh, numbers of people who are on their own who don't have that family support um, who are living in conditions that are not ideal um, and of course don't have the options to decide when they work they've got to work they've got to bring in um, you know their income um, and you know the stresses and strains on them uh, would be considerably different um, and so I think mental health does have a huge part to play um, and again I think the um, you know the, the the role of the office and the role of support you know as we uh, you know as um, workforces become more agile and more mobile we're certainly, you know, looking at, um, you know, the well-being of our workforce and making sure that everybody has got a touch point on a regular basis and that there is support for people there who, um, you know, may be feeling the, the, the strain and maybe, um, you know, suffering slightly. Now, I understand in your spare time as well, Andrew, that you are driven by a passion for education as well. And quite often when we've looked at the way that the government has led the country through the pandemic, often people have been referring to it as we're very much learning as we're going along, being guided by the science. And others might say it's essentially the blind leading the blind. However, however we look at it, do you think that it's possible to actually become effective leaders in our roles and professions without and going through learning curves, maybe getting through one or two things, um, getting them wrong, and then learning from that experience and embracing that. Well, my my whole career has been uh, uh, driven out of the the um, you know that that process of getting it wrong, learning, and then moving up and uh, and trying it again. So, I, I think the answer to that is. Uh, yes, of course, when you're dealing with life and death situations um, and uh, with the pandemic as it unfurled, um, you know, then that's slightly different and taking mm-hmm. the best advice possible, um, you know, which the government did, um, you know, is really the only way forward. Uh, you know, you can guess as much as you want as a maverick. Uh, you might get it right, you might get it wrong, but um, I think everybody is happier uh, there being somebody who has experience and expertise in the subject, um, you know, giving the the the, uh, the salient advice to follow. Um, but it, you know, in terms of uh, moving forward, um, you know, we're, we 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 all understand uh, the pandemic slightly more now. Um, you know, we have to find our own way uh, in it, and and leadership is. Uh, not about uh, knowledge and expertise so much uh, as it is about uh, resilience. Uh, it's about vision. It's about being purposeful, um, you know, and it's trying to bring people along on a common journey uh, towards something that is better than uh, where we currently are at. And I think that's, uh, you know, that counts the same for um, business as it does for, you know, uh, the situation we're in with the pandemic. Uh, we need to move forward. Uh, the country is in a perilous state and it is going to take leadership uh, to galvanize everybody um, and to, to take us through the, the rough waters that are ahead. I think that's absolutely right, Andrew. And if we do think about moving forward just before we do draw to a close on the programme today, um, what is next for you and for Comexo over the next 12 to 18 months as we grapple with this new normal that we're going to have to adjust to? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business during that period? 
Well, you know, we're fortunate and, um, you know, we have uh, all of our employees uh, working and uh, we've got new business that is uh, that is coming on um, and we've got clients who, uh, you know, are acquiring our, you know, our services on a, a wider scale and uh, we've got a number of conversations talking about using what we do on a more global scale. Um, so from our perspective, we are one of those uh, industries where we will be employing uh, people and, uh, uh, you know, we're um, you know, fortunate that there should be the right, uh, you know, level of expertise on the market, um, you know, for, for us to be able to fill those positions. Um, so whilst we're mindful that... Uh, it is going to be a rough weather ahead, and uh, as an entrepreneur, you can never be sure of what your future holds, and uh, you know what the next telephone call is going to uh, to bring. Um, you know we are, um, you know we're approaching it with a positive mindset. Uh, you know that we can uh, create more jobs, uh, and we can build a, a, a more successful company. And fingers crossed, uh, we manage to do it. Mm, let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share on that front in the coming months, Andrew. And given just how informative it's been having you joining us on the show today, it would be a real pleasure for me to welcome you back on in a few months' time just to see how things are getting on in that respect as well. I'd be delighted. Fantastic to hear, um, Andrew. Thank you ever so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure having you joining us. <laughs> and most importantly, you, um, do take care and do stay safe as well with all still going yeah. on in the meantime. You too, Scott. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks. Bye. I was speaking on the programme today to Andrew Try, CEO of ComXO. Next up on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Sir Jeff Hurst, who will be joining us on the programme very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Uh, good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want, wanted to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, 
in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking that it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game's got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it. It's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently 
and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. 
So you've got to hone that lot all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people make mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted that was the goal. And it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for 
kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Lyne. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but t- between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was, that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. When you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, 
whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, 
I was initially first fairly surprised, I think, it, <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charlton and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, But not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbaum role mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over the, two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her. Third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. 
So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yeah, so I think it's, I think the that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my, you know, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.